Hello, and welcome to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about everything industrial and organizational psychology. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and my guest today is Dr. Marcus Creed. How are you today, Marcus? I am very well. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. So you're an associate professor of psychology at Iowa State University, and you have a truly impressive publication record. I was looking at it before the interview today, and I think what impressed me the most is that the breadth of topics that you've published papers on, and it's clear that you spend a lot of time reviewing the research literature in I.O. across just many different topics. And I'm guessing that what you found is that as a field, we really we really have our quantitative research and statistics game down. Well, we're very sophisticated in how we do our research. And that's certainly what I used to think when I was in graduate school. We used to sneer at our fellow social psychologists as being unsophisticated. But I think my, my view on that is that it's changed quite dramatically over the years, primarily because of some of the review work I've done. And some of it is just kind of been accidental stuff I've stumbled across. Okay. My question was a bit of a joke because I talk to a lot of biopsychologists and overwhelmingly conversations are about quantitative research. Where are the numbers people? I guess what I'm wondering is during this review that you've done, what have you found? Like what surprised you? It's been a lot of kind of depressing stuff. I kind of break it down into a, a couple of, of broad areas that I, I am concerned about. The first one, I guess, is that I think our our, the readers of our journals don't seem to read stuff very closely because what's happened time and time again is, is that I'll be reading an article and I'm, I'm literally not looking for trouble and I, I'm reading it for, you know, preparing for a class or because I'm doing a, a meta-analysis and I'm reviewing something and sort of a, a very obvious and severe error kind of jumps out at me. And then you look at the paper and you see that it's been cited a thousand times and you ask yourself, well. How is it possible that I'm the first person to notice this, to be relatively obvious, this a very severe error? I feel like readers aren't doing a good job. And then, of course, the, the errors themselves indicate that, that these individual researchers are often working with, so either they're dishonest or they, they don't know what they're doing, mm -hmm. um, which is maybe even more concerning. And then also, the sort of the lack of a response from editors and I'd say our society leaders has also been discouraged. They should be setting policies in place that minimize the degree to which these errors and problems make their way into the literature and also being a little bit more responsive when you point them out and say, well, we're going to you know, issue corrections or retractions or whatever, whatever may be warranted. So I'm kind of disappointed with the field in general. I kind of, I'd like to chop it up into those kind of three constituencies. So by the time you see an error like that as a reader. You know, that means that the author or authors have either missed it or, you know, they're deliberately doing something. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they just didn't know what they were doing. The editor or editors has missed it. The peer reviewers have missed it. So who's not doing their job here? Is it everybody? You know, it's, it sounds harsh, but I've, I feel like it is everybody. The weird thing is, you know, often I've, I've raised some of these concerns with with colleagues, with the, of course, with the authors, you know, I might shoot them an email and say, Hey, this, this thing is going on, or I've had extensive discussions with editors as well. And one of the responses I got almost a decade ago now from a, a leading editor or a, the editor of a leading journal was that, well, yes, you're, you're right. 
these results that you are pointing out are impossible, that they can't possibly be right, but everybody's doing it, right? Why, why are you picking on this particular author when we know that this is a widespread phenomenon? And at the time I was still relatively naive and I was like, what? You, you think everybody's doing this? Like that can't possibly be true. And then I looked into it and we, you know, we, we started coding some articles and we did a bit of a review and, you know, the editor was kind of right. It's not everybody, but the, the, the proportion of articles that have these kinds of errors is so high that if a IO practitioner came to me and said, Marcus, I, you know, I just read this really cool article in one of our top journals, you know, what do you think about it? Unless I could look at the article, I would probably say, you know, disregard it. You cannot trust the work that's being published in our fields. In the same way, that, you know, if I, if I said to you, Ben, I'll, I want to take you to one of my favorite restaurants, there's only a 20% chance that you'll get food poisoning. You would probably turn down that invitation, right? Because the, the risk is too high. It's not, it's not a hundred percent. It's not even 50%, but it's yeah. an unacceptably high level. If I told you. You know, step on this airplane, there's only a 2% chance that it will crash. Again, you'd probably decline that offer. So I think the, the, the sort of the base rate of really severe problems in our field is so high that I, I honestly have trouble telling anybody to trust what is being published right now. And that is very disturbing. It's science is supposed to be generative, right? We're supposed to be building on each other's work, but. If each of the building blocks below us is junk, then we're kind of at a standstill or worse reverting as a field. So I learned about some of what you have found in, in your review work on Twitter, and I'm going to include a link to your Twitter account in the show notes, because I think you're a great follow for a number of reasons. But recently you talked about a review that you did. If you're a listener and you're thinking, well, maybe this is a little exaggerated, I want to share with you something that, that Marcus shared two weeks ago, I, I think from, from where we're recording this now in late June, 2022, you completed a big review project of some very recent articles in top IO psych journals. And although it wasn't the primary focus of the review, you also coded whether the hypotheses were pre-registered and whether a power analysis was used to inform sample size. So you coded 300 articles from top IO journals. How many of them did you find had pre-registered their hypotheses? We found one. And so this wasn't all articles published in the journal. We, we were looking for something very specific, but there were lots of articles that met the sort of inclusion criteria. So we found one paper that had pre-registered their hypotheses. Uh, this was a specific literature review for a specific topic. I don't know what that topic is, but really any 300 articles, recently published IO articles, the fact that, you know, we could pick any 300 and only one might have a pre-registered hypothesis. Very these, were all, these were all papers with hypotheses. So these were not really? narrative reviews or theory papers or even meta-analyses. These were all ones where primary data had been gathered and the people had, you know, were testing a whole series of hypotheses. And then, you know, it's worth, it's noteworthy that it, if you, if you look at some of the top journals in cognitive psychology or social psychology, the pre-registration rates are much, much higher. You know, the, it's been, it's been almost a decade now since we, since we learned about the the reason for pre-registration, there's no excuse for IO psychology to be so far behind the trend. And it's not as if pre-registration is difficult. You know, it's, a, it's a relatively easy process. So I, I have some 
the students who listen to the show as well, could you give them a thumbnail sketch of what pre-registration is and why it's important? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively straightforward process. There are many online resources for doing it. The most widely used one is probably the Open Science Forum. You create an account, it's, it's free, it's very quick. And there are now templates which you can use to sort of write down what your hypotheses are before you gather the data or look at the data. You can also just put it in a Word document and upload it. And the nice thing is it gets a timestamp so we can see when you uploaded this document or when you registered these hypotheses. And then we can be certain that the, the hypotheses were actually created a priori, right? They were before they were formulated before you, you looked at the data. Uh, and that removes concerns around parking, certainly hypothesizing mm -hmm. how results known. And if you also specify, you know, how you're going to analyze the data, you know, are you going to use a control for certain things? How are you going to treat outliers? Are you going to treat missing data? Then we can also be more certain that p-hacking has been. So it gives people more confidence that you haven't just stumbled across some sort of a chance relationship or chance pattern in your data and then constructed a, a theory, quote unquote, or a hypothesis after the fact. And out, out of 300, again, there was just one that had pre-registered its hypothesis. Shocking. Uh, you also looked at power analysis. So I assume we're talking about 300 research articles in which statistical power is an issue. Right. Uh, out of those 300, how many included a power analysis? Not one. There was not a single mention of, of statistical power or calculations for it, which again, very surprising because we've been, as a, as a the field of psychology, obviously been talking about and being concerned with, with low power since what, 1960, 1956, somewhere on there. So it's been, it's been well over 50 years and, and it's something that I'm almost certain that 99% of all researchers, when they go through their PhD programs, they're exposed to that idea at some point. So again, very distracting. It would be hard to imagine them not being exposed to that pre-registration of hypotheses. I can kind of buy that it's still, even though it's been around for a while now, I can kind of buy that it's maybe not emphasized as much in programs just because so many of the current faculty may not have, have come up where pre-registration of hypotheses was a thing. But power analysis, as you point out, is not recent, not by a long shot, and not so terribly difficult to do. But for the, the sake of, again, those students who might not know what the heck we're talking about, could you just like sort of explain what statistical power is? You want to be reasonably confident that you can detect the effects that you think are present in, in your data. And so you want to have a sufficient sample size to be able to do that. So for example, if you're, if you want to test some complicated moderation hypothesis, doing that with a sample size of 50 is probably the chances of detecting an effect, even if it was there is going to be abysmally low, but those are the kind of, kind of sample sizes we still find relatively often in our, in our, by leading journals, for those of you who are wondering, we looked at the journal of applied psychology, personnel psychology, journal of organizational behavior and the journal of management. So those were the four that we, these yeah, are uh, career making journals often for young researchers, but you really want to be published as you're, as you're looking for a job or coming up. Yeah, absolutely. These are not obscure journals. These, these are by, I think any reasonable standard considered top journals in our field. So we've got researchers who are submitting stuff, no power analysis or not pre-registering the hypotheses, despite the fact that both things have been talked about an awful lot. Editors are accepting them for publication and publishing them. Sometimes in addition to just not doing those 
you know, commonly accepted good practices. There's also just statistical problems with the results that you're seeing. Editors are missing it or ignoring it. Not sure which reviewers also either missing it or ignoring this stuff. You as a reader and a pretty small minority of readers that are picking up on the problems, you will, you know, bring it up to the editor maybe. And the response is, yeah, that's true, but everybody's doing it. So why pick on this one journal? Why pick on this one person? Um, I'm just wondering, have you given much thought to what could be a solution to this problem? <laughs> well, you know, I don't, I don't have any particularly good ideas. I will say that the, you know, the one person, the one editor who I think has done a particularly good job of raising the quality of work published in their journal has been John Antonakis, who is, and I think he's stepping down, but he's been the editor-in-chief of Leadership Quarterly yeah. the last couple of years. And you know, he's really required much greater rigor in, in the work that is submitted there. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert in leadership research. You know, I, I do some work on the side with, with one of my colleagues on it, but the stuff coming out of there is, is, you know, you have much greater faith in it and the impact factor of the journal has skyrocketed. So people are taking the work more seriously because they have more trust in it. And so, you know, I think ultimately it's going to come down to, to editors in chief putting their foot down and saying, you know, we, there's some basic things that need to happen for you to publish your work in our journal. And if that comes at a short-term cost of the number of submissions or how the, the journal is viewed or even relationships with you know, peers and friends and colleagues, so be it. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to have those kind of leaders take charge of journals right now. It, it still seems like there's still, that's still lacking the, I was, I was the the person who raised concerns about the work that was published by Fred Willow a couple of years ago with, with uh, editors and uh, the work he did with, with many colleagues, there, the response of the, the journals for the most part was just appalling. Why do you, that wasn't an unbiased source, but it was not great with some exception. Yeah, Matt Water at Leadership Quarterly at the time she was the editor, she, I think we had handled the situation very well. Neil Ashkenazi at Journal of Organizational Behavior also, I thought, handled it well, but the editors of other journals, it was, it was deeply disappointing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you, you know, you talk about editors and their ability to make a difference and, and I follow John on social media as well. I don't know him personally, but. I was also impressed with just how open he is about his editorial practices, very open to talking about why he's doing what he's doing. I've been really impressed with that. And, and some of the stuff I've read, it's like, wow, this just sounds like a regular person. How did that yeah. get published? And <laughs> almost always I look at it and it's like, oh, it's leadership quarterly and John's the editor. He allowed them to write like a person. I wonder, do you have any, any hope for sort of decentralized solutions to this? So when I think about something like researchers one or other kinds of new sort of peer review publishing platforms that are being proposed. Do you see any future in that? I, I guess when I'm thinking about some of these articles, I think, wow, if this was published on a platform that had post-publication review, so in other words, it's not counting on you to co contact an editor and expect them to do the right thing, but that there's actually a forum for you to put a, a comment right along that article there, right. pointing out the issue. 
where do you think that goes? Is that going to be helpful? I think it would be. I think the the big the big hurdle for that to kind of be a, have have a positive impact is that you know, as a field, certainly in the time that I've been involved with it, we've had this this very substantial move towards business schools. A lot of our our top faculty, understandably, uh, doubled their salaries and moved to business schools. And business schools, and I think until they change how they rank each other, what they use for promotion criteria, until they de-emphasize some of these top journals a bit. It's going to be very hard to argue that a young researcher should publish in these alternative formats, which are scientifically perhaps much more rigorous and better for the field, but for their own careers is going to be detrimental. There, there are many business schools who will really only consider articles that are published in a very, very narrow range of journals. And it's the same journals that, you know, that have these problematic practices. The greater the competition to get published in those journals, the greater the incentive is to, you know, fund your numbers or to engage in harking. You've got some data that you gathered from an organization, what you were looking for initially didn't pan out or the, you know, the hypothesis wasn't supported. So you start, you know, sifting through the results and you look at every two-way and three-way interactions and you have some mediation models and some, you know, whatever you can come up with. And eventually you'll stumble across something, right? And yeah, and that, that you'd expected that all along. And if, if that's the way that business is done and that's the way your colleagues do things, or at least you think they do things, then I think the system just perpetuates itself. And you, you look at the authorship of people in those journals and they're mostly now at business schools. It's, it's relatively rare, especially in journals like, I think the journal of management for mm-hmm. sort of traditional IO folks to, to publish articles there. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that eventually this will happen, but I think there are real obstacles in the way. Seems like it's an issue of misaligned incentives, particularly in academia. I'm very much from the practitioner side myself. And, and so for me, as someone who tries to use the best evidence to make decisions and, and implement interventions, it's discouraging to hear, you know, how, how many problems we have in the published research and it makes it tougher to go to the stakeholders and say, look, we shouldn't just be making decisions on our gut or <laughs> because of what worked for us once before, you know, there's all kinds of biases that come into that. We really should be making decisions based on the best available evidence. And it really just kind of sucks when the best available evidence is, is still so lacking in these areas. I guess one of the things that surprises me, or maybe it shouldn't, is even when you take the incentives out of it or, or lessen the incentive pressure a little bit after a researcher has tenure, I still don't see anybody making the move to these alternative platforms. I wonder if you're, are you seeing any signs of that? It seems like it would be easier. Okay. You're now, you know, in a research university, you've got your tenure. Um, now you don't necessarily need to publish everything that you come up with in a high impact journal. That's going to help you get tenure. Cause that was kind of your goal. You can go for a platform that is more rigorous or that allows, you know, post publication review or, you know, a single platform for your pre-registration, your data sharing, your publishing. Right. It just doesn't seem to be that anybody's doing that or very few people, I should say. Very few people. Yeah. Very small minority. And you know, it it would be nice if tenure gave you that, you know, that security, but I think uh, I'd have at least two responses. The first one is that people develop habits and they develop methods of of getting their work done. And you know, if you've gone through five years of grad school and six years of pre-tenure, so you've got 11 years under your belt, at least. Are you really going to change the way you conduct the business of doing research when it's kind of worked against yeah. you? Yeah. 
it's uh, doubtful. And then, of course, there are often still massive financial incentives. You know, I've heard through the grapevine and people have confirmed this to me that, that there are quite a few business schools who will offer almost a, a type of bounty for articles published in the right journal. So yeah, if I'm the business school and I get an Academy of Management journal publication, suddenly my dean might find you know, a three-month summer salary for me as a, as a reward. You know, And if I'm um, are in a business school that probably easily translates into thirty to fifty thousand dollars, and so you know the the incentives are perhaps lessened, but they certainly don't go. In a, in a psychology department, we don't have these. I wish I wish that was the case. But and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you know that this is all business schools, and I'm certainly not saying these are all business school professors do this. But again, the the base rate is so high that. You know, I wish the, the honest brokers out there in the business schools would stand up a little bit more and, and shake their fists at, at their colleagues and say this, you know, we're, we're destroying our own field, the credibility of our own field. And I, I see relatively little of that. There are very few people who, who seem to be upset when, you know, when all of this, these, these apparently fraudulent results by the Wallop Board Group came up. There were far more people who were upset with me for, for pointing it out and contacting editors, you know, I got, I got threats, I got legal threats, I got physically threatened, I or attempted bribes. It was, it was all sorts of crazy stuff. I think only at, at once did somebody come up to me at a conference and say, you know, thanks for doing that. And that was, that person was you know, retired and kind of out of the, out of the system. I don't know. We, we seem to have a bit of a, a culture problem perhaps as well. It's exactly the opposite of what we tell non-scientists about how science works. I've noticed, you know, it's, this is why you should trust it is because we have all of these checks and balances and transparency and so on. And then I hear a story like yours where you're the bad guy for pointing out that there's a problem as if you have some kind of personal crusade against a, a particular researcher. It would also help if we had more more contact with practitioners like yourself, if the gap was not quite as wide as it were, because if we saw more value in sleep reporting for practitioners, here's, you know, here's a new selection method that we thought might be really useful, but turns out you know, not as useful as thought, or, you know, here's a new way of training people. And it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit better than, than the status quo. I think then somehow we, we get back to our roots of, of asking important and relevant questions, not being so theory obsessed and also being more transparent and open about what we really find. This has been a, a fantastic and enlightening conversation, Marcus. I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me this afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun.